JB around the world, and thank you for joining us once again on truth2u.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is JewsforJudaism.ca. JewsforJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Scoback. Shalom, Jano, and just great to be here with you again. Always wonderful to have you on the program, my friend. We are continuing to investigate the 300 alleged 365 Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. And we're getting nearer to the end. We are up to the book of Zechariah. How about that? I can just taste the end now. (laughs) (laughs) We can start start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, But we are in the... Now, there's a lot. There's a lot in the book of Zechariah. We're going to be working our way through it, dear listeners. It may take us two, three, possibly even four programs, but we are going to work our way through. Now, it begins with Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10 to 13. It says... Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and they shall become my people and I will dwell in your midst. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will take possession of Judah and his inheritance in the Holy Land and and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Now, uh, the corresponding verse according to the list in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 5, verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea... And all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now the, uh, oh, I've got, hang on, I've got got a couple from the book of Revelation. It continues on with uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. The prophecy fulfilled, Michael, according to the list, the Lamb on the Throne, Michael. It sounds like a song by uh, Paul McCartney and Wings. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> I just thought of that. So, you know, this, this probably, this passage, we could say, is a, a messianic prophecy, but it's not about the person of the Messiah. It's really describing... The uh, what the messianic age will look like, and and just to for the listeners um, that have a, a Hebrew Bible, a Jewish Bible, it's the, it's a different pagination here. It's in a Hebrew Bible. This passage would be chapter two in Zechariah, but verses fourteen to seventeen, uh-huh. and uh, it's very clear that this is not a prophecy about the person of the Messiah. As a matter of fact, my very hyper excitable open Bible does not give this a star indicating it's a messianic prophecy. My English um, ESV study Bible, my New King James Version study Bible, and many other Christian commentaries just don't see this as a passage in Zechariah about the person of the Messiah. When I went through this one, I, I looked at it, I really couldn't figure out what the list maker was thinking here um, because the passage in Zechariah has nothing at all about a lamb and nothing at all about a throne. Um, That's a good point. (laughs) What's that about? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I'm going to be saying later later on tonight, I might as well say it now, is that it's very clear to me that the the methodology used in composing this list was that the list maker started off with this image in their mind of Jesus that they believe is the lamb who sits on the throne, Mm. and then they go back to the Hebrew Bible to find some kind of correspondence between what they're starting with, which is, again, the New Testament, Mm -hmm. and then working their way back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And you could just tell that this is clearly not an example of someone who began studying the Hebrew Scriptures and then found a clear allusion to something in the Christian Bible, because there's just nothing in Zechariah about a lamb or a throne. Um, so here they just did a very, very poor job of uh, of making this association because there's just no is there's there's nothing at all. There's nothing. No. Well, let me let me return to verse eleven because this is interesting. Of course, in my uh, New King James Study Bible, there is no star next to this either, so it's not suggesting that it's a messianic prophecy. However, there is trickery in the text that will allow you to assume so because. 
when uh, when I read uh, in verse uh, 11, then you will know that the Lord has sent me to you. Me is capitalized. Uh, now, that allows the, uh, uh, the reader um, to make the, uh, the leap that a capitalized me is talking of Jesus. The Lord has sent me, capitalized, to you. Who is this me? What's been going on earlier was the angel who was speaking here um, in the end of chapter one. Ah, uh, right. There we go. And Well, this is what at the beginning of chapter two, it says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And so this is the, and uh, in, in verse three, and there was the angel who talked with me going out uh, and another angel and, and so on and so forth. So this is who he's dealing with. Okay. So this is the me. Yeah. Or it, sometimes, you know, the prophets will speak about how God is sending him to speak to the people. But I think the, the, the real mistake here, it seems to me that the fulfillment here is based upon the very, problematic assumption that Jesus is God. And mm. so what the passage really is speaking about, if you look at the entire piece, it's really speaking about the future messianic age when God's reign will spread throughout the entire world. We see, we'll see that later on in the 14th chapter of Zechariah where it says, in that day God will be one and his name will be one. And it's really, we, we've seen this before, it's probably one of the key themes of the messianic prophecy is that they speak about the universal knowledge of God. It comes up in many, many passages in the Bible, at least a dozen, if not more, that speak about the um, spread of the knowledge of God, as Isaiah says, like the waters that cover the seas. Um, everyone is going to basically uh, acknowledge mm. the existence of God. So, but that's what the passage is speaking about. It speaks about all the nations coming to embrace God, and there'll be the future glory and vindication of Israel but the passage here is not speaking about the Messiah. It's speaking about something that will uh, t be happening when the Messiah is here, which is the universal mm -hmm. acceptance of God. So the only way this fulfillment prophecy works is if you make this you know, very, very tenuous assumption that uh, Jesus is God. So that if Jesus is God, and this is speaking about the whole world coming to believe in God, then it would be talking about Jesus as well. But you really have to do a tremendous tap dance through the scriptures to make that kind of, you know, mm, leap. You absolutely. have to really. It, this is not what you would call in a in a court of law, making a case or proving a case. You know, it's it's just built upon sort of an axiom that's laid down. It's really that's the starting point. You have to accept the Christian axiom that Jesus is God. Um, mm. If that's the case, then true. This would be speaking about Jesus, but. You know, it, it reminds me of this, I may have mentioned this before, an, an old uh, uh, Steve Martin routine where he talks about, he's going to teach you how to get a million dollars and not have to pay taxes. So he says, first, get a million dollars. And then, yeah. <laughs> that's obviously the hard part. So, you know, once you have that million dollars, then he'll somehow get you to get off not paying taxes. But, you know, the, you have to sort of begin with this ludicrous assumption that Jesus is the creator of the world and the creator of every molecule of existence, including his own mm -hmm. molecules. And then, of course, you can lead someone through this passage and other passages to the conclusion it must be talking about Jesus. But that's, the, that's where they run into a roadblock because that's, that's, it's that assumption that really has – that can't be proven. That's really just an assertion. Mm. So that was uh, number 330 on the original list, 265 on the new revised standard version, which was supplied by the refinersfire.org. Uh, the next one on the list is Zechariah chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 8. It is, and it says, Hear, O Joshua. Now, now Christians often get, particularly Messianics, get very excited uh, about this one, Rabbi, because uh, Joshua, Yehoshua, uh, is the name of Yeshua, and they go, oh, you know, there, there's a connection, and we, as we've <laughs> often demonstrated in this list, they love connections. But it says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Now, in the Christian translation, uh, when I talk about trickery with the text, this is a fascinating thing, because here we have branch totally capitalized. And this only occurs uh, only a handful of times in the Christian uh, translations, but they've absolutely capitalized branch. 
And uh, on the list, this is connected in the New Testament with John chapter 17, verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The uh, Messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list, God's servant. Michael. So, most commentaries, at least, uh, you know, that I've seen, even among some Christian commentaries, understand that the branch here, the Hebrew word is semach, or sprout, um, it refers to Zerubbabel, um, who was one day going to basically, um, you know, be instrumental in rebuilding the temple, which is part of what's really going on in the chapters here in Zechariah. And um, he's called Branch because he's an offshoot of David's line. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's in the Davidic line, and and he's one day, ultimately, Zerubbabel is going to be the leader, the ruler of the Jewish nation. So one approach to these uh, branch references, there's a few of them in Zechariah, um, is that they refer to Zerubbabel. Now, some, and the Talmud is uh, certainly um, pointing in this direction, understand that the branch is either in addition to or actually the branch reference here is a reference to the future messianic king. And actually, let me just point out that this is a... uh, a theme, really, uh, an issue that really runs throughout a lot of messianic prophecy about the future. You'll find that commentaries to the Tanakh often are not clear if a passage is describing the, let's say, the rebuilding of the second temple and that sort of glorious time in Jewish history, meaning a lot of the prophets were writing before the second temple is, is rebuilt, is, is, mm-hmm. is built. And so many uh, commentaries to the Bible will see references that, you know, speak about this sort of glorious rebuilding as speaking about the actual rebuilding of the second temple. And others will say, no, it's really pointing beyond that to the future where the third temple is going to be rebuilt. And so that is not always an easy uh, kind of passage to decipher because you know that it's talking about the future, you know, it's speaking about the rebuilding and sort of uh, entering into a, a more ideal kind of existence. But the commentaries sort of get stuck sometimes, and they don't know if it's a more immediate kind of reference or a more future reference. So here, mm-hmm. you'll certainly have many, many Jewish commentaries who will agree that the branch here is a reference to the Messianic King, uh, the future Messianic King. And the Talmud explains that one of the reasons is that. The Talmud in Sanhedrin 98b says that the name of the future Messiah is going to be Menachem. Menachem means comforter. And the the numerical value, if you take the letters in the word Menachem, the, the, the name Menachem, it's 138, which is the exact same numerical value as Tzemach, as the branch or the sprout. So because sprout and this name that's proposed for the future Messiah is the same numerical value, 138. So they basically say this is a hint that the sprout here is really referring to the future Messiah. At the end of the day, um, what you would have here, in the best case scenario for the Christian point of view, is that the Bible here is telling us that there's going to be a Messiah. That's all the verse says. And it doesn't identify Jesus as the Messiah. That's one of the Again, the ongoing problems that we found, that even when the Tanakh makes reference to the Messiah, it doesn't mean that that's Jesus. I mean, that's, again, a leap. That's an assumption. Mm -hmm. That's an assertion. There's nothing at all that proves or gives you any reason to assume that Jesus has anything to do with this, um, you know, with this character, this uh, Tzemach, or this Messiah. Um, So that's basically all we're left with. We're left with a potential, I wouldn't say it's clear at all, a potential reference to uh, the fact that God's servant is the Messiah, and I would say Mazel Tov, <laughs> that's very possible, And uh, but it, it doesn't point to, with any kind of clarity, to Jesus. And just to uh, clarify, there is no capitals, there's no capitalization no. in the Hebrew text. No, not at all. Uh, so what they are uh, trying to assert, well, it's fairly clear what the Christian translation is trying to assert, but it's just interesting. I mean, really, where do they get off uh, capitalizing a word like this when there is no such uh, resemblance in the Hebrew text yeah, in no, any case? There's an old saying in Italian. I don't know the Italian. Something like traditore, traditori, um, which means 
the translator is a traitor. I mean, mm. every translation is really a commentary. And so the capitalizing of certain words um, is basically an editorializing. It's not really mm. sticking to the text itself. It's, it's inserting uh, a point of view into the text. We saw that in Daniel chapter 9, where they took the word Mashiach and they capitalized it as Messiah, mm. where normally in, in even Christian translations, the word Mashiach is simply translated as the, as the word anointed. or Anointed, anointed with the lowercase a. Yeah. And that, that's an, it's, it, it's an interesting thing, and you, you encounter that, and we've spoken about this before, but you encounter it before, and that's a good example. Uh, we find uh, Mashiach, uh, even in the uh, New King James, they will decide how they want to use it. So they may have anointed with the lowercase a, uh, other Christian translations may have an anointed in uh, in different verses with an uppercase A, a capital A, and uh, some translations, particularly when it comes to the book of Daniel and in chapter 9, it will uh, forget about anointed, let's go with Messiah and let's capitalize it. But in this case, uh, it's a little bit different. I mean, we capitalize the tetragrammaton in here, L-O-R-D. We capitalize it with the word Lord, uh, and Lord is capitalized. However, when we get to brunch, and I'd be interested, I mean, I'm just saying to people, if you've got your Christian translations, uh, have a look and see in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Here, the entire word of the word brunch is capitalized, and uh, it's just one of those curious things. Nevertheless, the next one on the list, shall we, shall we continue? Sure. Well, we jump back in time, Rabbi back to <laughs> Psalm chapter 10, verse 4, and we've, we have dealt with this before. Nevertheless, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've... <laughs> We've done that one, but they're throwing it in for good measure and uh, returning. Exactly. I think that, that it, they're really the source of that on the list really is Zechariah six twelve to thirteen. I think they're using Psalm one ten uh, one ten yeah. as just sort of a parallel. They're springboarding from that onto uh, Zechariah chapter six verse twelve and thirteen. And it says, uh, then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts saying, behold, the man whose name is, an, and again, we have a branch in, entirely capitalized, whose name is the branch with an exclamation mark, nonetheless, uh, from his place, he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, uh, the connection in the New Testament, according to the list, book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 5, verse 5 to 6. Uh, so also Christ did glorify himself to become the high priest, but, he, uh, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he uh, also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Also, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point. The main point. Let's get to the main point. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled is priest and king forever. Michael. So this is actually a very, very uh, widely held misunderstanding um, in Christian circles that, that Yeshua, Jesus, was both, both a priest and and the king. He, he served yeah. simultaneously as priest and king. And here, the proof text from, from Zechariah chapter 6 is really a, um, a very, very, uh, I think, gross misreading of the passage. Um, the passage here does not speak about one person who will be both a priest and a king. Um, if you read the passage carefully, it speaks very clearly about two different personalities. It first speaks about the high priest who is specifically identified as Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clearly not Jesus because it's a historical figure that lived at the time around mm-hmm. the, the building of the, the second temple. Um, so the high priest is identified as a particular person and it's not Yeshua. And by the way, there are people named Yeshua in the Bible. This person is named Yehoshua and Jesus is never referred to as Yehoshua. It's a very, it's a totally different name. Mm-hmm. Um, so the high priest here is one of the personalities, and then it says there'll be another person who's called this Tzemach, this branch. Now the the person named Tzemach is not identified as the high priest in this passage. He's defined as someone who will be building the temple. He'll be the king. He'll sit on a throne and rule on his throne. 
And the passage basically says that Tzemach, this king, will sit on his throne, and the priest, the high priest, will be on his throne, meaning that it specifically says there'll be two different people sitting on two different thrones. Mm-hmm. And the passage tells us that these two people will cooperate and they'll get along with each other, which sort of proves that it's not one person. It's, it's, it's two people. Okay. They will function each in their own realm. The priests basically are leaders of the Jewish people in the sense of being the teachers. Um, you have many references that the lips of the priest will teach knowledge. And uh, that was the basic role. And the priest really did not spend a lot of their time in the temple offering sacrifices. There was a rotation where, you know, each particular priest would be in the temple maybe one or two days a year, you know, in a good year. So mm-hmm. the way they spent the rest of their time was by teaching. That was their role. They didn't have to pay taxes. They didn't have to have other jobs. They were supported by the tithes of the people. And that was their main responsibility. They were the teachers of the nation. And so what we're told here is that there'll be these two leaders, one being the priestly leader, the high priest, and the priestly class here of people will be the teachers of the Jewish people. And then there'll be the king, who is essentially the political leader. Now, Jesus could not have been an Aaronic priest, meaning he clearly wasn't a priest that the Bible speaks about. You know, you go back to the book of Exodus, and you have the whole origins of the priesthood that begin with mm. Aaron and the anointing of Aaron and his sons. And then, right, any priest basically has to be a descendant of Aaron. And um, clearly Jesus would not have been that kind of priest functioning in association with the temple in Jerusalem because he was allegedly from the line of Judah, not from the line of Levi, of Levi. Um, Mm. I say allegedly because, again, we saw back in Matthew that there were some problems with tracing Jesus' genealogy to anyone because the New Testament deprives him of a father. Um, Mm. I'm not willing to go that far. I think he had an earthly father. And uh, we don't have any evidence that the earthly father was from the tribe of Levi. Um, Every reason to believe that the most likely candidate might have been his father, Joseph, um, Mm -hmm. who was traced back to the line of Judah. Now, Hebrews, I think the verses that you referred to, the book of Hebrews, I think in chapter 5, more or less uh, says as much as this, in that he wasn't from the Levitic priesthood, the normal sort of high priesthood that the Jewish people had. And therefore, they associate Jesus with Malchit Tzedek. Um, the problem is that there's no uh, connection between Malchit Tzedek and the temple in Jerusalem. So mm-hmm. it's very hard to, to get Jesus to serve as the high priest of the Jewish people in any normative way um, through Malchit Tzedek. You know, the only real uh, line of the priesthood for Jews and biblical Judaism is through Aaron and through that lineage. Um, so, in terms of this prophecy, Jesus being a priest and a king forever, he certainly was not a priest, and the clearest thing in the world is he wasn't a king. He didn't mm. rule, he didn't build a temple, as this passage says, he didn't sit on a throne, meaning that, that there was nothing at all that makes Jesus a king. He, didn't, he wasn't anointed as a king, he didn't serve as a king, he didn't rule, he had no political uh, dominion over anything in the world. Um, so, this prophecy really falls completely flat. Um, now, some, again, reading this passage, I, I mentioned this before, some will say that the Semach here, again, is Zerubbabel, which would be perfectly understandable because Zerubbabel was a contemporary of this Yehoshua ben Yehotzadak. So the simplest way of reading the passage is that it's not a future passage about some ultimate uh, thing that happens in the Messianic age, but it's describing something that takes place during the time of Zerubbabel, or according to those commentaries who do say it is a reference to the future messianic age, it is speaking about the future messianic king who will be anointed, who will sit on a throne, who will actually rule, who will have authority, mm. but it's not Jesus. So that now the second one uh, seems to ring more true to me because, I mean, Zerubbabel never, as I understand, never sat on the throne, never ruled as a king. Well, he, he didn't rule as a king, and that's why you would want to lean towards a second interpretation. Mm. But he did have leadership role in the Jewish community. He was a governor, yeah. Yeah, he, okay. he wasn't like he was just some, you know, guy. He wasn't an, an anointed uh, No, he one. wasn't I, an official uh, 
king in the sense of a Davidic no. king. Okay. The next one, uh, we well, for the next, I don't know how many, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I don't know. Uh, we're going to be uh, jumping back and forth around the uh, verse Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And it does say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having, oh, this is, and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the corresponding verse, <laughs> this always makes me laugh, Rabbi Skoback. I'm sorry. It is, one, one, it is one of the funniest passages. That, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it is pretty funny. Um, this is Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 to 10. And a very great multitude spread their, spread their clothes on the road, cut down branches from the trees, and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before uh, and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Uh, see, they've cut out my favorite bit. Are we going to get to my favorite bit? Because you know what my favorite bit is. Oh, I suspect I know what you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> is, we'll get there. is that? Hang on, it, we'll get there. We're okay. All right. It's all right. Now, the, the messianic uh, prophecy fulfilled uh, is greeted with rejoicing in Jerusalem, Michael. Okay, so, you know, there's going to be a lot of double dipping in, in Zechariah chapter 9 here. Um, I think they squeeze a half a dozen, at least, um, yeah. prophecies to fulfill out of this verse. So, this, again, you know, we're going to ring our bell here and say this is, again, one of those few times where the list maker actually stumbled onto a real, bona fide, genuine messianic wow. prophecy about the messiah in mm-hmm. in the, in the in the sense of the person of the messiah mm-hmm. so th- this can be identified as a real live genuine bona fide messianic prophecy about the person of the messiah um that's understood by almost all uh readers of the bible but as the ve- the next verse makes very clear this anointed one has not yet come mm-hmm. um, i mean this king has not yet come how do we know because the very next verse says he will rule and have dominion over the whole world, and he'll be ruling at a time of universal peace and disarmament, mm-hmm. which again is a theme that is not just here. It's, it's a theme that's developed very clearly in the Bible. If you go to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, Hosea chapter 2, verse 20, at least in the Hebrew Bible, all speak about universal peace and disarmament. This is one of the things that we expect will be very, very in your face when the Messiah is here. So chapter 9, verse 9 is speaking about the Messiah, but what's very clear is that this Messiah has yet to appear. It hasn't happened yet. It certainly was not the case in the time of Jesus that he had any uh, authority or dominion over any part of the world. Uh, He didn't rule anyone or anything, and he certainly did not rule at a time of universal peace and disarmament. He was ruling... He was, not, he was living at a time where there was violence all over the place. So, unfortunately, you can't apply this to Jesus. At best, what Christians will say is, you'll see that in the second coming of Jesus, he will rule and there will be peace in the world. But again, that's not prophecy fulfilled. That's wishful thinking that he is going to fulfill it. But you cannot say that um, this is one of the prophecies that Jesus actually fulfilled. Um, Mm. Now, verse 9, we'll see this in a few minutes, it alludes to his being victorious in war, um, and he'll be an anointed one who'll overpower our enemies. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, it's pretty clear that just just reading this passage in its context, not just uh, parachuting down on verse 9 here, um, but, you know, going a little bit further... And looking at the next verses makes it very clear that um, this is someone that has not yet come on the stage of history. Mm. Well, let, let me just read the next verse because, um, again, it's, you know, I'll start again. 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having, having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river uh, that be the Euphrates to the ends of the earth, and uh, that's that's verse ten. Now the next one on the list um, borrows from there again and corresponds uh, and and connects it with John chapter twelve, verse twelve to thirteen. 
again, it says the next day, uh, a great multitude that had come to the feast, uh, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to greet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So this is John's uh, account of what of, of the same events. And the uh, uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is beheld as king. Uh, you, you can't see me here yawning, but... Uh, <laughs> this is sort of like uh, I want to say nostalgia ain't what it used to be and we're just back here at the same thing um, look the, the verse says that this uh, one who will be riding on the donkey will be the king not that mm. he'll be beheld as a king he'll actually be the king mm. and again Jesus was never anointed as a king he never ruled or held any authority he was never accepted by the Jewish people as a king so there's no way of connecting Jesus to the king. Now, let me just say one thing in terms of the, the quotation from John, and it's actually important. You know, for the, the fact that the people came out and greeted Jesus as the king, that in itself doesn't make someone a king. But in terms of the messianic process, as Judaism understands it, you know, Maimonides speaks about this, actually, as, um, you know, the fact that the Messiah will basically go through two stages – There'll be someone who Maimonides identifies as what you would call the Messiah in potentia. Meaning that if you can imagine, you know, the world is not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden, you know, everything has been transformed overnight and people didn't notice it. Meaning that it's going to be a little bit of a process. And the Messiah didn't come into existence on the day that the world is transformed, he had been around when he comes. He he he'd been on in the world already. You know, he, he mm. wasn't as if he was just born that day. So Maimonides says is that this great king who we will have, um, you know, gonna, there's going to be a time when people will suppose that might be what we're saying here: beholding beholding someone as a king. You might say that this person who seems very likely to be able to fill the shoes of the Messiah, you might say, I think this person is going to be the Messiah. Rabbi Akiva said that with Bar Kokhba. I mean, that many people you know, could be identified as what you'd call the Messiah in potentia. In every generation, if the Messiah can come tomorrow, there has to be someone here today that can fill those shoes. So if I wanted to play that game, you know, I could think you know, through my Rolodex and think who is the person most likely if the Messiah was going to appear tomorrow, who is it today? And so what Maimonides says is that you could have someone who you think might be the Messiah, right? Meaning that Maimonides says he's someone that has the ball rolling, meaning he is doing the kind of things the Messiah should be doing. He's teaching the Jewish people. He's spreading the knowledge of Torah. He's, mm. he's, he's helping people move back to the land of Israel. He's maybe getting the ball rolling in terms of what you would need to do to rebuild a temple. I mean, he's got things moving in the forward direction. So as opposed to someone who's doing absolutely nothing, you can imagine some Jewish guy that spends his whole day watching video games on a couch. You would never suspect he might be the Messiah. But mm. if you have like the generation's greatest Torah scholar who's also a great, great leader and a brilliant person and wise and righteous – and he's doing all the kinds of things that are moving the messianic program ahead. So you have a right to say, you know what? I think this person very well might turn out to be the Messiah. You're going to see that, you know, he's going to become the Messiah one day. That's a perfectly normal thing to do. Maimonides says that if this person that you think might be the Messiah ends up pulling everything off and he actually can be the catalyst or the cause of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and he can bring about world peace and the gathering of all the Jewish people to the land of Israel, etc., meaning all the things that the Bible describes, you find it in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, for example, all the things the Bible describes as what the Messiah will do, if this Messiah in potentia accomplishes it, then you know you were right, and he was the Messiah. Right. Right, he's the Messiah. If the person who you suspect might be the Messiah ends up not succeeding, then you know you were wrong. You were wrong. <laughs> it's, it should be that simple. It is simple. So, <laughs> well. you know, so when the people greeted Jesus, at that point, he wasn't the king. He wasn't the Messiah. He hadn't accomplished anything at all. At best, you could say that what the people were doing is they were saying, we're hoping this 
person that we're seeing here, he is going to be the king. He's going to be the Messiah. And it turns out they were wrong. Meaning mm. that it wouldn't have been a problem. I think it would have been, you know, quite understandable for people. And we know that at the time of Jesus, there were actually at least four or five people that, you know, had a following as the potential Messiah. It wasn't just Jesus that attracted a small following. Other people, you know, got uh, a small following of people who thought they might be the Messiah. So it's not out of the realm of possibility, um, you know, that, you know, if Jesus had pulled off what the Messiah was supposed to do, then the people would have been right. right. Um, but sure. just just beholding someone as king, meaning assuming that he's the king, doesn't make him the king. Doesn't make it so. Yeah. The, uh, the list tries again with the same verse, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, connecting it with John chapter 5, verse 30, which says, I can do, uh, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but of the will of the Father who sent me. The uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is that the Messiah would be just. Well, one would hope so, Michael. You know, it's, it, you, know you have to be careful. What does the word just mean? It's an English word that we use, and I'm not sure it has any real correspondence to the Hebrew that's used here. Um, yeah. So the verse here, again, let's repeat it, is about the Messiah. But have we seen, as we've seen, the verse and the passage itself does not identify Jesus as this Messiah. And it seems actually to clarify that he certainly wasn't the Messiah described in this passage. Um, the Messiah will be, and the word that's used in the Hebrew is a tzaddik. Now, tzaddik, if I wanted to find the appropriate English word, I wouldn't say just. Um, it just doesn't necessarily mean that much. Tzaddik, would that be righteous? Righteous, right? yes. That the Hebrew word is tzaddik, which means righteous. Well, where, where does the word righteous appear in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine? He is just and having salvation. Right. Okay. Now, is is that the word is tzaddik used? Tzaddik, there? yeah. So okay, he's just and having salvation. So we'll get to the salvation part in a minute. <laughs> mm, okay. But the the just part, I mean, just is not the most inappropriate word, but to me, you know. It doesn't have the same uh, ring as the word righteous. And um, what Zechariah is telling us is that this king will be someone who is righteous. Um, and therefore, we know the Messiah will be a righteous person. Um, mm. The problem from a Christian point of view is there's no proof that Jesus was a tzaddik, uh, was righteous. Mm. Meaning that, again, it's an assertion, it's, a, it's an axiom of Christian belief that he was righteous, that he was not just righteous, but he was the most righteous person that ever lived. But again, that's a belief they have. But, you know, to someone who is not beginning with the Christian uh, axioms, uh, not so simple, not so clear. I mean, I don't necessarily see any proof when I read the Gospels that he was a righteous person. Um, he might have been. But again, it, you know, the fact that someone might have been righteous doesn't mean they are righteous. Um, and the important part here is that even if Jesus was righteous, it doesn't make him the Messiah. I mean, there are, there are many tzaddikim, there are many righteous people, as the Bible writes. Um, that doesn't necessarily make you the Messiah, mm. right? It's just a prerequisite, meaning the Messiah has to be, you know, a college graduate. But just because you're a college graduate doesn't mean you're the Messiah. It's a prerequisite. So a prerequisite for the Messiah is that he'll be righteous. And what's interesting is that, and this is where the translation issue comes up, John chapter 5, verse 30 doesn't prove that Jesus was righteous at Sadiq. It just says that his judgment was fair. And I think that all you really get from John 5.30 is that he was a just person in a sense. What does just mean? He carried out justice. He was fair, equitable. Mm. That's not the same as saying someone is righteous, meaning that you can yeah. have a judge, for example, that in his role as a judge is just. He's fair. Mm -hmm. He doesn't show mm -hmm. favorites. Um, that doesn't make him a righteous person. It makes him a just uh, judge who does justice. You can have plenty of judges that are like that. But when they leave the courtroom, they'll kick the dog or they'll curse out their wife. Or, right. So, again, the, the problem is that the verse is telling us the Messiah will be a tzaddik. And the question is, without prejudging Jesus, was he a tzaddik? And mm. I would say that there's no proof. And the verse here that's quoted from John certainly doesn't prove it because it's not even saying in John 5.30 
that Jesus was righteous. It just simply says that his judgment was fair. And uh, there's a, a, a probably a world of difference um, between those two concepts. Those two definitions. Uh, well, we're not done with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It, it no, attempts, <laughs> uh, we have another attempt, and it connects it with Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And according to the list, the messianic prophecy fulfilled is that the Messiah would bring salvation. Michael. This one I, I found fascinating. So, again, to repeat in case we haven't made the point enough times, but I figure if they can repeat, we can repeat. Sure. Um, this verse does describe the Messiah, but it most certainly does not describe Jesus, in case that's not clear yet. Now, the verse does not say at all, and, that, and that's what the listlet maker is claiming, that the Messiah would bring salvation. The verse does not say that this person will bring salvation. It does not say that. Um, mm-hmm. What it says, basically, is that he'll be someone who is victorious. Now, uh, some Christian translations do say he will be salvation. He will be whatever that means to be salvation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense even. Um, but I, I checked them many, many Christian translations, and they translate it properly as saying that he'll be victorious. Um, just to name the ones that I saw, I saw this in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Amplified Bible actually translates it as having salvation, having, not bringing, that having salvation, and they, they, they translate having salvation as being triumphant and victorious. Um, the Common English Bible has it as victorious. The Complete Jewish Bible by the Messianic Jew David Stern, who we mentioned before, he renders it as uh, being victorious. The Living Bible, the, the NIV the New International Version, the New Living Translation, the New Revived Standard Version, and many others. They correctly translate it as that this person will be righteous and victorious. But there's absolutely nothing here at all about bringing salvation. Um, it's clear that Jesus did not bring salvation in the way the word salvation is understood in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we've seen this many times that the, the Christian uh, spin on the word salvation is very different than the way the word is understood in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, salvation refers to being rescued from political or physical danger or threat or harm, whereas in the Christian mindset, salvation refers to the being rescued or redeemed from your sins. Um, so it's very clear that Jesus did not bring any salvation whatsoever to the Jewish people in terms of rescuing them from their enemies. As a matter of fact, after his death, there's a verse in Luke, I think chapter 20, I don't remember the exact reference, where they say, we were hoping that he would be the one to restore Israel. Right? Mm. His own disciples, after his death, they just say that that's what we were hoping he would do. Mm. And then in, in Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse 6, you know, after the alleged resurrection of Jesus, the first thing they ask him is they say, Lord, are you going to restore gonna the kingdom to Israel? But they speak mm. about restoring the kingdom because that was the messianic program, is that there had to be the restoration of Israel. Um, and clearly Jesus did not bring about any restoration of Israel. Um, now, I, what I found the most peculiar about this particular fulfillment um, piece was that Luke 19.10 um, which they claim is the proof that Jesus brought salvation, is to me a very strange proof. And why? Because it's really the story of Zacchaeus, who was the cheating tax collector. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the story, he decides to give a half of his wealth to the poor and to pay back four times what he stole in his tax collecting. Mm-hmm. Now, when he makes this declaration, Jesus says... Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Mm. For the Son of Man, he says, came to seek and save those who were lost. Now, what I find fascinating is that this seems to be um, more in line with, I think, a more Jewish biblical idea of, you know, what, let's say, a Messiah would be here to do, meaning that. You know, not just the Messiah, but any uh, teacher, any any prophet. You know, mm-hmm. they're there to help people improve and to help people change. Sure. And so Jesus seems to be celebrating the fact that this, you know, low life turned himself around. 
Mm. And Jesus says in response to that, because this person has changed and has become a better person, Jesus says salvation has come to this house. So what's interesting to me is that here you see sort of a very anti-Christian context to the idea of salvation because it's not as if this person was saved because he believed that Jesus died for his sins. And there's nothing implied here about that at all. I think Paul would have a heart attack reading this passage in Luke because there's nothing here about the person having faith in Jesus um, or the fact that this person couldn't do anything through his own deeds to bring about some goodness in his life. I mean, mm. with the, the, the sort of the Pauline and sort of Lutheran and you know, modern Protestant ethic is that you can never be good. There's nothing you can do through your own works that makes you worthy in the eyes of God. And this story seems to basically turn that on its head, saying that, mm. that Jesus is here celebrating the fact that this guy seems to have done tshuva. This guy seems to have repented and changed. And this is an example of salvation, not the sort of more normative idea that salvation comes only through faith in the blood of the Messiah who shed on your behalf. Um, mm. So the fact that this is brought by the list maker as a proof that Jesus would be, bring salvation, I don't think that's the kind of salvation that Christians normally think Christians are bringing, that Jesus is bringing. Um, mm. So I, I find Luke 19.10 a very peculiar uh, reference point. Fair enough. Uh, we're still not done with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Oh, no. And now, we are taken, <laughs> now we're taken to Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list is the Messiah would be humble, Michael. I have to say, you know, there's an old Jewish expression, oy vey. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to say oy vey here. <laughs> uh, again, you know, for the 10th time, this is a messianic prophecy about the Messiah, but the passage in Zechariah makes it very clear that it's not about Jesus because he did not do any of the things the passage really speaks about. Now, mm -hmm. the Messiah, we're told here, will be humble. The actual, the Hebrew word really is poor. Um, but I think that the better way of understanding the word poor here, ani, uh, is humble, uh, poor in spirit. And uh, that's true. The Messiah will be someone who's humble. The problem, I think, for Jesus is it's not so clear that he was so humble. Not so clear to me. Meaning that Jesus, we see, was someone who demanded people uncritically accept him. Um, that's not very humble. Meaning that mm. to expect, and that's what you get, especially you know, when you're reading through the Gospels, he seems to expect that just because he says who he thinks he is... Um, that people should just drop everything they're doing in life and follow him uh, without asking any questions. Um, he throws his weight around, threatening and cursing those who don't just drop everything they're doing to follow him um, uncritically. That doesn't mm. seem to me to be very humble. You know, in, in Jewish uh, writing, in Jewish literature, truly humble people, like Hillel as an example, didn't demand or expect that people follow their authority. They simply earned their authority, meaning that, that Jewish leaders didn't um, really do anything to enforce authority. The only mm. authority they had was because people accepted them as great leaders. They had to mm. sort of earn it charismatically. They weren't able to, to boss people around or make demands or claim to be uh, you know, people that should be followed. Matter of fact, as, as soon as someone would expect that they be followed and claim they should be followed, that sort of just <laughs> it rules them out. I, I posted hmm. on Facebook a few weeks ago a cute story about a, a great, great, brilliant rabbi. I think his name was Yitzhak Kharif, the Isaac the, the Sharp One. And he was very brilliant, and he once went to the, the great Hasidic master at his time, uh, the Chose of Lublin, I think it was, the seer of Lublin, I believe that's who it was, maybe wrong. Um, but he complained to this other sage, he said, you know what, I don't understand, I don't understand why, you know, I'm a, a tremendously great scholar, so I don't understand why everyone is following you and no one's following me. Because mm. the Chose of Lubin had a huge following. So the Chose says to him, I'll tell you what. He says, the problem is you don't understand why people are not following you, and that's why they're not following you. 
He said, I don't understand why people are following me, and that's why they're following me. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, and, and the, the peculiar thing is that the proof that's brought here that Jesus was humble in Matthew eleven twenty nine is a peculiar proof. What's the proof? Jesus says, I'm humble and gentle at heart. Now, the one thing that I know about truly humble people is they don't go so around claiming claim. that they're humble. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's not to me. Now, I, I want to make something clear. I don't want God, if forbid, to cast aspersions on Jesus. He might have been a humble person. He might have been humble in truth. It's just that I don't see any proof of it in the Christian mm. Bible. Um, it might be there. It might be true about him. But it, there's no proof that he was. And there are things that he does, at least, the way he's portrayed in the Gospels, that make me want to at least rethink whether it's the first word I would use to describe him. Because right. some of <laughs> what he does, you know, I don't think he claimed to be God, by the way. But, I mean, mm-hmm. if he was claiming to be God, that's not very humble. That rules. No, <laughs> it's not very humble. Now, the next one on the list is the last one of uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it deals primarily, and this is one of my favorites, I think, on the list. It deals primarily with the last part of that of the verse lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're talking uh, about one animal here, aren't we, Michael? And it, it corresponds that to Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 to 9. Uh, in fact, I'm going to read, if it's okay, I'm going to go a little bit further than that. I'm going to read from verse 3. In fact, I'm going to read from verse... I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 21. This is what it says. Now, <laughs> bonus now bonus drew, material tonight. Bonus material, uh, no extra charge. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, is that right? Bethphage, something, something like that. Um, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, two animals. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, let me stop for a second, because you know what that reminds me of? You know those movies, you know, like the, the, the cops and robber movies where uh, where the, the uh, policeman might jump out in the middle of the traffic and wave his arms and, and make someone stop? And uh, commandeer the vehicle, right? With it, with his authority as a, I don't know if this ever happens in real life, but uh, apparently his authority as a uh, uh, as a police officer gives him uh, special privileges to be able to stop someone on the road as they get out of your car. I need this now for law enforcement. I am taking possession of this vehicle. I'm commandeering the vehicle. That seems to be what what's happening here. And uh, verse four. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, uh, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It goes on to say in verse 6, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them, both the donkey and the colt, and set him on them. Now, the, now the way I understand this, <laughs> Rabbi, is I like to think, that, uh, I mean, you see this in circuses, right? You see a guy riding two horses at once, and it's really a very, very clever thing. I mean, not many people would be able to do this. I'm sure a lot of practice, a dangerous practice is involved, uh, t- taking control of two animals at once. He has one foot on the saddle of one, one foot on the saddle of the other, and in he goes. And I have to say that if this is actually what Jesus did, I reckon I'd be cheering as well. <laughs> Don't you think? Well... <laughs> It would certainly, Come on! I mean, it would, you know, it would I certainly mean, the, turn around to look. I would agree with that. The, the people are cheering. They're crying out, "Hosanna to the Son!" Well, I'd be impressed. Anyway, so the the corresponding verse. Now, just to be clear, he is riding two animals. They the the yes. and it seems like that the, he's told the disciples, "Go and take someone else's property." If anyone says anything to you, say, "The Lord has need of those." Thank you very much. And they put their clothes on them. They set him on them. Maybe he's maybe he's actually kind of saddled both of them somehow, uh, or he's standing. Who knows how this is done? But it's pretty clever. That's all I'm saying. The the uh, messianic prophecy fulfilled according to the list presented to jerusalem riding on a donkey but bill you should have written presented to jerusalem riding on two donkeys michael okay this this is uh is actually well known and it's interesting there's actually uh, numerous problems here first let's get to the the most important part um the the verse does seem to say the messiah himself may indeed be riding into jerusalem on a donkey of course Again, the important part, the really important part to sort of focus on is that 
riding on a donkey doesn't make someone the Messiah, even if they're riding into Jerusalem. Meaning that that by focusing on the riding on the donkey, what the list maker is doing is latching on to the least significant part of this passage in Zechariah. Meaning that it's totally ignoring, and that's what's so peculiar about this list, is that when you read the passage in Zechariah, what's significant is that this king is going to bring about a world of peace and disarmament. And, you know, that's the hard part. You know, to get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem, that's sort of child's play. So it's sort of, it's absurd to sort of seize on this really uh, irrelevant detail of the passage. Um, It's not the most significant part of the passage. And to ignore the most significant part of the passage, um, you know, there has to be an expression for that, something about a a flea swallowing a gnat. I don't know what the expression is. But it's it's just, it's just, it's, it's it's a blunder, you know, it's just a blunder in reading Zechariah. To, to, to focus exclusively on the most insignificant part of the verse and to totally ignore the most critical part of the verse, which mm. is the real rulership that this person is supposed to have, dominion over the world at a time of universal, universal peace and disarmament. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. Now, in terms of this detail, it's actually the, the error that Matthew makes here is significant, and we'll see why in a minute. First of all, the other Gospels don't have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on two animals. Luke chapter 19, Mark chapter 11, John chapter 12, all have Jesus, thank God, riding into Jerusalem on one (laughs) animal, which obviously makes the most sense. Um, Here in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus has them take a donkey and its colt, and to bring them together and cover them with one garment over both animals, and Jesus has to do some kind of an acrobat act to ride Mm. both animals into Jerusalem. Now, what's clear is that Matthew does not understand the the use of what basically is a parallelism in the Tanakh. And it comes up actually quite often in in the Hebrew Scriptures that a passage will express the same concept in two different ways, for example, in Genesis 24, um, it speaks about Rebecca. I think it's verse 16. Uh, Rebecca is described as um, a virgin that had known no man. Now, it's basically saying the exact same thing in two different ways. Um, maybe for emphasis, and that's mm-hmm. usually the reason why the Bible will say something like that. Um, when the brothers throw Joseph into a pit... It says that the pit was empty, it had no water in it. Well, obviously, if it was empty, it had no water in it. So you'll find throughout the Bible, they will say basically the same exact thing uh, in two different ways, often for emphasis. And um, Matthew doesn't seem to understand that, meaning that all the other gospel writers, any normal person would read Zechariah and understand that it's talking about one animal. Mm-hmm. Um, what's significant here, and this is, I think, very, very important point, it's easy to miss, is that it sort of tips you off to the fact that Matthew is writing his narrative of what happened in the life of Jesus with the story of Zechariah in mind, meaning it seems that Matthew is not really telling us primarily what happens to Jesus. Matthew is writing the whole story about Jesus because he's assuming that as the Messiah, right, he's got to be riding into Jerusalem on two animals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it sort of, this really should make any reader of the Gospels wonder if when the Gospel writers are putting together their narratives about Jesus, are they really telling us history, what happened? Or are they telling us what we would expect to hear if we know the Hebrew right. Scriptures and know what the Hebrew Scriptures say about the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So again, if the Hebrew Scriptures tell us the Messiah has to ride into Jerusalem on two animals, so Matthew wants to make sure that he tells a story by painting it in that way. But mm. you can see that he basically only does that because he misunderstands the, um, the phrase in Zechariah. Mm. And uh, it, it's a very significant, it's a telling kind of, of mistake that he makes. Isn't it? Yeah. Now, the one other thing I should point out is that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus does send two disciples to the neighboring village to bring a donkey back to him. But in the Gospel of John, he doesn't send any disciples. He just seems to find the animal by himself. Mm-hmm. So there's a very, very significant difference between the Synoptics and the Gospel yeah, of John in terms of this story. 
Okay. All right. Well, that's that one uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Okay, Zechariah, let's do one more. Uh, Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4. It says, from him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, and from him every ruler together. Uh, The corresponding verse according to the list, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. All right, because we have the word cornerstone here in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4. And according to the list, the, the Messianic prophecy fulfilled is the cornerstone. Actually, Michael. one of the Christian bookstores near where I live is called the cornerstone. I thought that was the cornerstone. Well, no, apparently this is the cornerstone. <laughs> okay. Um, this is, I mean, we just were doing uh, one of the few passages on this list that's a bona fide prophecy about the Messiah. This passage in Zechariah is not a passage about the Messiah. I think we have to sort of change gears here and realize that this is not a messianic prophecy that they're quoting. Um, Not even my hyper-enthusiastic open Bible gives it a star that indicates it's a messianic prophecy. I think Not only do I not have stars, I don't even have a a capitalized hymn. I mean, uh, my New King James study Bible is one of the most Christological uh, slanted uh, translations that I've ever used. And they never miss an opportunity to throw capital in. And um, but but nowhere here uh, is him the word him capitalized. You should Michael. get your money back. Oh, I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so that's out of the starting gate. Let's just understand that Zechariah ten here is not about the Messiah. Um, applying this passage to Jesus, you know, it makes the the list maker. It, it really it shows they're entirely guilty of ignoring the context of this passage, and that's the only way they can possibly make this mistake is just simply close their eyes to what's really going on here. Verse four, which is what's being quoted uses a, a number of different expressions to describe the leaders of the Jewish people. So the passage doesn't only speak about a cornerstone, it speaks about a number of other terms that are used to describe leaders of the Jewish people. And in verse 5, it goes on to say that these leaders will trample their enemies in the mud. It's, I mean, you read verse 5, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, maybe I can just dig it up very quickly. Um, sure. What it says here is that... Um, they will be like warriors trampling their enemies in the mud of the streets in war. They will wage war, for God will be with them, and the enemy riders of horses will be put to shame. I mean, it, it, it's very hard to allegorize that. And mm. it's very, very clear that whatever is being described in verse 4 is going to be one of these leaders that just destroys the enemies in a real live war. It's not a, uh, you know extraterrestrial kind of battle. It's not a... Uh, and you know a, a metaphysical battle it's talking about real down to earth fighting battle war mm. enemies armies etc um so it just totally has nothing to do with jesus in any way shape or form um what is the proof that is brought here that jesus is the cornerstone so in ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 it simply says that jesus is the cornerstone uh t- to me that's not very convincing i <laughs> think that That the Christological argument is saying, you know, uh, the proof is that we're claiming that Jesus is the cornerstone. Um, You know, I would say they have to bring a little bit more uh, in order to be at all convincing. We we dealt with this too. I mean, earlier on, uh, we addressed the the, the cornerstone theme. I think it's um, it is. It's I's. It says sons. It also appears in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And behold, I lay in Zion a, a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So I think what's going on again, I said this before, is that it's very clear to me that the list maker could not have uh, taken the direction of reading the Hebrew Bible and trying to find passages that are speaking about the Messiah. It's very clear that the list maker begins with this already Christological association of Jesus to a cornerstone. And once they have that association in their mind, they're now going back to the Hebrew Bible, and any time they see the word cornerstone, they get very excited, and it becomes a messianic prophecy. So this this sort of, this item on the list sort of betrays the methodology of the list maker, and shows that they're like this person we described in the very first session that we had, 
and the ground rules that they basically shot their arrow into the tree and now they're drawing a target around the arrow. Mm. And uh, there's no other way of, of taking this verse in uh, Zechariah and, and misreading it as a messianic prophecy about Jesus when it clearly isn't. So what, mm. what they begin with is their presupposition that Jesus is the cornerstone, whatever that means. It's obviously a symbolic and allegorical uh, it's a pregnant kind of uh, symbol for them. And so how do you find any indication that the Hebrew Bible predicted that Jesus would be the cornerstone? So there isn't any, but all they need to do is find the word cornerstone. That's it. And that's, it. that's it. That's all they need. They need a similar word, a similar theme, a similar phrase, and that's a connection. And let's just put the two verses together and that'll do. As we have often seen in this list, we are going to kick off next week from Zechariah chapter 11. Okay. Boy, we, we achieved a lot today. Thank God. And there's a lot in there is a lot in Zechariah chapter 11. I don't know if we're going to be able to finish it all, but we shall see how we go. But there's certainly uh, some fireworks ready to go off there. Thank you, my friend, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Rabbi Michael Skoback of JewsForJudaism.ca. That's Jews for Judaism in Canada. And uh, if you haven't been to the website, JewsForJudaism.ca, make a point of going there. There's a link on this post uh, because there's an awful lot of information there. If you liked this program, you're going to love that website. And, of course, the YouTube uh, channel as well. There are links there. So thank you, my friend, for coming back on. It's such a great pleasure to be with you. I look forward to talking to you again next week. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.